Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. On today's episode, we are going to take a deep dive into Harry and Neville's parallel journeys, right, Laura? Yeah, since we wrapped our Order of the Phoenix chapter by chapter discussion, I've really been itching to do this. Because we know that Harry and Neville are intrinsically linked by prophecy within the scope of the Potter series, but there are outside influences and older stories that have sort of converged to really influence and inspire those journeys. So we're going to talk about that today. Excellent. But first, we have some voicemails and muggle mail to get to. Let's listen. Hey, MuggleCast. Uh, favorite chapter episode was great. I've been wanting to do this with the books. I've only read them once, and my next time going through, I was going to do a really deep dive into favorite books, favorite chapter, favorite moments, etc., etc., character elements, all that good stuff. So uh, i got to get through a bunch of Star Wars stuff first, and uh, so you'll hear my response to my favorite chapter and book, etc., like three years from now or something. But <laughs> really, I wanted to ask the question. I was getting my teeth cleaned, and the hygienist, said that she's excited to go to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, but she said she was upset that after 13 books, they go and kill the main character in the final movie. And how could you like a series like that? And thankfully I had, you know, the dental instruments inside of my mouth, so I couldn't really correct her. But my question is, how do you correct someone that's really just blatantly wrong? Yes, like Harry technically died, but then, you know, he came back alive. But, and there weren't 13 books, so, like, how do you just, like, <laughs> how do you correct someone that's really just wrong about Harry Potter? I love this, because I've definitely been in this situation before, where people yep. just, you know, they know I'm a Harry Potter fan, they know I do the podcast, so they share some information about Harry Potter, and it's just wrong, but I don't want to be that know-it-all, so I don't correct them. Do you guys run into this situation? Definitely. Yeah, from time to time. Mm-hmm. I'm upset I missed out on half the series, though. <laughs> You're right. Where are these other books? We still need to read them. Books 8 through 12. Uh, <laughs> the Cursed Child. <laughs> I don't even know how you would well, come up with 13. Like, who tells you that? I think somebody was playing it, a no, prank. Wasn't it um, the series of Unfortunate Events? Isn't that actually 13 books? Or is I it I think more? so. Oh, yes. Yeah. He purposely ended it after book 13. Could, yeah, could it's unlucky. it be a simple confusion of the other book series there and do they die at the end i just don't know but when you guys do you guys correct people yeah innocently enough depends you say to say oh um yeah actually there's just the seven or something like that if it's if i have dental instruments in my mouth then it's gonna come out all weird so Uh, Uh, right well that's what i was gonna say is smart move number one for not correcting the hygienist (laughs) <laughs> given the fact that you probably had all types of things that were in your mouth that, you know, maybe something slips, goes the wrong way. But uh, I would <laughs> just die. say this was just maybe well-intentioned conversation, nothing meant by it. What often bothers me, and I still don't know how people do it, is rowling versus rolling. <laughs> Regardless of what you think about her, J.K. Rowling is – the biggest author of our time, in a biggest author in generations, has the highest selling book franchise of all time. Know her name and how to pronounce it. Like think think through all the authors over the millennia, right? You don't mispronounce their names. 
So show her a little bit of respect. <laughs> we, but we've had some listeners on this show who say Rowling, and we don't correct them because <laughs> we don't want to be that know-it-all jerk. I hear where you're coming from, sir, because I just do not like correcting people when they're wrong about Harry Potter. I just feel like it's snotty, so I don't even bother. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. So I just let it go. Yeah. But Andrew, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not even talking about people on this show. There are people- Oh, don't backtrack now. On television. Yes. Television. Oh, yeah. That still call her Rowling. The only person I care if they get it right is Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this next email comes from Jackie. Hi, all. I really enjoyed the favorite chapters episode. Laura, you mentioned that if you could read the books from anyone's perspective, it would be Severus Snape. Well, one of my favorite fanfics ever happens to do just that. It's been at least eight years since I read it, but I loved it a lot. And I hope it's as good as I remember as I take it as canon. It's called A Difference in Family, The Snape Chronicles. And she provided a link, and we will include that link in the show notes if any of our listeners want to read it for themselves. This one is from Christina, and also got one from Orpheus, very similar. Hello! After hearing your fan cast about Olivia Coleman playing Umbridge, I couldn't believe I hadn't thought about it. Laura mentioned seeing her in The Crown, but not the most important part. In the show, Olivia plays the Queen. And guess who was just cast to play an older version of the Queen in seasons five and six, Imelda Staunton herself. She is literally playing the older version of Livia. So I think it makes complete sense that Olivia and Imelda would play the same character in both The Crown and a potential HP reboot. That's cool. Perfect. Yeah. Destiny. Last email comes from Max, who says, Hi, Mugglecasters. I just wanted to write in to say, you do a great show, and I just found it recently, so I'm binging. Currently up to episode 164, somewhere in 2009. That means I was literally two when it was recorded. (laughs) Thanks, Max. We're done with your email. Next. (laughs) No, the second paragraph is the better part. If you respond to this, I'll hear it in 300 episodes or so. I have no idea what is happening in the world of Harry Potter right now, but I am sure that you are still doing an amazing job. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for your confidence, oh, Max. Max, we appreciate the endorsement. Real props to the listeners that we have that have like only read Harry once and they've already found this show. You know, like that's yeah. real cool. I love hearing from new listeners. And thank you to everybody who writes in. We love reading all the feedback. It's It's really heartwarming to see people responding to the show. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we move on to our main discussion, we wanted to hear a quick word from one of our sponsors, Third Love. Third Love does bras differently. They're designed with millions of different measurements, giving them over 80 bra sizes to suit your unique body. Every bra is made for your comfort with memory foam cups, no-slip straps, and a smooth, scratch-free band. I love the no-slip straps that stay put without digging into my shoulders, and I also can't say enough about the durability. I used to have to purchase new bras at least once a year, but my 2018 Third Love bras are still going strong. And Third Love wants to help you make sure to find your perfect fit, because fit is about size and shape. Their team of fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find that perfect fit and the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. And if you don't love it, 
every customer has 60 days to return it. Third Love then washes and donates all their gently used returned bras to someone in need, supporting charities in their local San Francisco Bay Area and across the United States. So far, Third Love has donated over $15 million in bras. So even though I doubt you'll want to return your Third Love bra, it's absolutely a brand you can feel good about supporting. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash mugglecast to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash mugglecast for 15% off today. All right, let's talk about Harry and Neville and their parallel journeys across the series. I'm so excited to talk about this. I know. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. And I wanted to thank all of you in advance because you did such a great job pulling examples for us to draw from. You're welcome. Thank you very much. But thank you. (laughs) Thank you for coming up with this discussion. I mentioned at the top of the show that we know, of course, that in the Harry Potter universe, Harry and Neville are linked by prophecy. But we'll be discussing today some of the deeper threads that we can connect between these character journeys, both in Harry Potter, but through a larger cultural and religious inspiration. And to kind of warm us up, I asked the panel to think of examples of stories that are either loosely or closely informed by cultural artifacts like religious texts or legends. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Each of those books is kind of dealing with a sort of a different lesson of sorts. And it was the first time an author, like with full knowledge and turns out quite a bit of scholarly research, um, you know, put together sort of their own take their own sort of fantastical take on what essentially is, you know, Bible lessons and a very angry Old Testament God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, but yeah, so so that was definitely a big one. And then in terms of just being inspired by myths and fantasy and even even Christian myths, uh, it really doesn't get any better in the form of entertainment than the Indiana Jones um, and particularly uh, I'm thinking of The Last Crusade, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course, as well. Um, you know, really, really good, fun entertainment with some real cool religious um, undertones. Yeah, I mean, literally yeah. searching for the Holy Grail, right? And finding mm-hmm. it and having yeah. it uh, having it have like booby traps and stuff. I love it. It's in the Millennium Falcon now, right? <laughs> <laughs> I also would have selected Chronicles of Narnia, particularly because of Aslan and the godlike figure that he is supposed to represent, or many would argue he is God himself. And that's something, honestly, when I was reading Chronicles of Narnia for the first time, I never would have picked up on. I just thought that he was this really cool, badass lion that showed up throughout the series and would always help to save the day. Hmm. So shows you what I know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's what's so interesting about all these is I think a lot of people don't realize they're based on myths and legends. And some of the ones that I thought of were Hercules, Thor, Robin Hood, King Arthur. All of these stories get rebooted endless times by Hollywood because, as everybody knows, there's kind of like a an empty well of fresh ideas. So they keep going back to the old stuff, the stuff they know that works, the stuff that's recognizable. Yeah. Oh, what I love about you mentioning King Arthur is 
that Arthurian literature itself is a mixture of Celtic and Christian influences. Um, And the latter, you know, the Christian influence had to do with the expansion of Christianity and, you know, an intolerance for pagan traditions. When you really whittle that down into asking how these stories have modern influences in children's literature and media, you end up with animated features like uh, The Sword in the Stone, Mm. recycling a story that originally met paper for the first time in the late 1400s. Yeah, exactly. Another one that comes to mind, too, is uh, The Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Actually, one recommendation, book recommendation that I got during a recent um, Slug Club hangout was for a series written by Steve Barry, and it's called The Templar legacy and a lot of similar themes of what we're talking about right now, but uh, I'm not that far into it. But suffice to say that the main character is on a quest trying to recover some sort of ancient relic that will somehow help him save what's going on in in current times. Can I just say, it's funny because the 14th century people who are writing these stories of like Robin Hood probably didn't picture an animated cat as the king. (laughs) Uh, when they wrote it down but but through the joy of adaptation um you know but look at what you just said though and then we just talked about aslan so there is a theme of oh yeah animated cats cats. yeah cats in charge (laughs) when they start running out of ideas add an animal (laughs) well and we'll get into this in a little bit but um i really appreciated eric how you were when you were talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or the Narnia series, um, you know, you were talking about how much of that was um, intentionally influenced by Christianity. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there there's some debate about this amongst literary critics, but also with C.S. Lewis himself. Um, he actually wrote about this in an essay in the 50s um, and basically said, you know, some people think that I began asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children (laughs) and then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument and then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for. And he said, this is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write it in that way. It all began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sled, a magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. And I hmm. thought this was so fascinating because, you know, the 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 narrative fabric of our culture is so ingrained with these images, especially Western culture, that I think, you know, if we make up our own bedtime stories for children in our lives, they're probably going to be maybe unintentionally influenced by Christianity, since that's the major, you know, religious symbology that we're familiar with. And I'm trying to remember, was J.K. Rowling in any way influenced by C.S. Lewis? I was doing a quick search right now, but I feel like I've read that, that she did borrow some things uh, in her writing, what those were, I don't recall off the top of my head, but... Not surprising that authors borrow from those that came before them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it depends on, did she read C.S. Lewis's work over the years? Did oh, she read Narnia? I'm sure it Sounds she like did. she did. Yeah. yeah. So naturally, there are probably some influences there. And I mean, somebody else who heavily influenced J.K. Rowling was Tolkien, right? So mm-hmm. she has yeah. heavy Lord of the Rings influences 
in the Potter books as well. And it's worth noting Lewis Carroll as well. Yes. So, I mean, that's the way that these narratives get passed on. You know, often you'll see something like Thor, which is... We we obviously mostly recognize Thor for his MCU representation. So it would be very easy for somebody who doesn't have the background knowledge to think like, oh, Thor is a comic book character. And it's like, well, no, actually, right. he's a Norse god. Um, so these stories Duh. keep getting recycled and passed on much in the same way, Andrew, you had mentioned King Arthur. It's entirely possible for somebody to have never read a single King Arthur story, but we would still know who he was based Mm -hmm. on his, you know, popular culture representations. There have been movies made about him in the last couple of decades. There are animated features that are based on those stories. So you needn't have ever read anything about King Arthur to know exactly who that character is. Yeah. I think there's actually a Netflix series that just came out this year called Cursed that is based on Arthurian legend. Mm. They keep going back to the old stuff because they don't have any other new ideas. It's pretty sad. That's another discussion. (laughs) (laughs) And there is a good deal of scholarship that explores the cultural functions of retold stories um, from their article called Retelling Stories, Framing Culture, Traditional Story, and Meta-Narratives in Children's Literature. Um, Stevens and McCallum have this to say, Retold stories have important cultural functions. Under the guise of offering children access to strange and exciting worlds removed from everyday experiences, they serve to initiate children into aspects of social heritage, transmitting many of a culture's central values and assumptions and a body of shared illusions and experiences. So can we think just like going classroom mode for a moment here? Can we think of any ways that, you know, this an idea like this could be represented in Harry Potter? Like we're introduced to this fantastical world that we have to grow accustomed to. But obviously Harry comes from the muggle world, a world that we recognize. So we can identify with him as he embarks on this journey, this new strange Mm. and exciting journey. Oh, yeah. And the concept of Harry being a chosen one really sticks out to me. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another familiar narrative. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about the Philosopher's Stone as well. That's something you might read about as a kid and you're like, oh, cool. J.K. Rowling came up with this. But actually, that is not a J.K. Rowling idea. Yeah, actually, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not to uh, bring up our slug club hang out again but um one of the uh other books that uh, got recommended was the alchemist the secrets mm-hmm. of the immortal nicholas flamel right. and uh, this is another series and what's so cool about this series for me at least i just started reading it finished the first book there's so many references across mythology and across you know sort of the history of fantasy that I find myself stopping while I'm reading, going on Google and looking up who some of these characters actually are. Oh, man. The fact that they, whether they were real, quote unquote, or not, is obviously up for debate. But the way that it's written as if they, many of them are still around today. And I just find that to be really, really cool. Awesome. And that's really where we'll start with Harry and Neville today. Um, Apart from being linked by prophecy in Harry Potter, 
Um, there are other influences outside the scope of the series that set these two on their respective paths. And the ones that we're going to focus on today are loose comparisons to the biblical journeys of Christ and John the Baptist. We've all looked over a few key passages, and we won't spend a ton of time on this side of the conversation because we could honestly do an entire episode around retold stories influences on the Potter series. Um, but one area where we really focused on was um, Luke one fifteen, um, and this would be pretty standard across editions of the Bible, but we're primarily looking at the New International Version. And this is where it talks about um, both Christ and John the Baptist's births were foretold. So John the Baptist was actually said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. And John also went on to baptize crowds of people while confirming to them that while he was not the Messiah, he knew the Messiah was coming and he spread the word about the coming of Christ. Does that sound like anyone we know? <laughs> Neville. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. What what things does Neville do? And they don't have to be one to one comparisons um, because mm-hmm. that's not necessarily how these types of retold stories work, right? They evolve over time. But what Mm -hmm. sorts of things has Neville done over the course of the series that kind of loosely match that arc? Well, Mm -hmm. he believes that the Dark Lord is back. He believes in Harry's mission, you know, him and his grandmother. Mm -hmm. His Mimbulus Mimbletonia baptized a room full of people (laughs) in stink sap, actually, (laughs) if I'm recalling correctly. That is correct. Mm. <laughs> that it was a stinky baptism. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with what Andrew. I, I think just his advocacy for Harry and Harry's mission, and the fact that you know, even going to Deathly Hallows, and it's probably jumping a little bit further ahead. You know, he's really the resistance within Hogwarts. He mm-hmm. is the leader. He's the one who's really championing the cause. We see him kind of elevate. And, and mature in in order of the phoenix but he's he's always at harry's side and i think that that is important yeah yeah agreed and what made me think that is this line that you just read laura about john the baptist coming as a witness to bear witness so that through him everyone must believe he wanted everybody to believe uh that the dark lord was back and that harry was the one to defeat him right and we see this um, type of foretelling literally represented in the Potter books in the form of the prophecy, right? So right. both Harry's and Neville's births are foretold. Do we know who the prophecy was made to or from in the Bible about their their births? Uh, off the top of my head, no. It was Trelawney. It was Trelawney. <laughs> <laughs> She's been around a while. Well, like, so John the Baptist is quite a bit older than Jesus, right? If he, because yes. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Right. Well, and people actually, um, according to the biblical narrative, um, there were many who believed that John the Baptist himself was the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like, nope, not me. <laughs> Don't worry, though. <laughs> He's on the way. He's coming. Um, But there are some other uh, really interesting allegories that can be made. So 
Um, John the Baptist was beheaded. And of course, this is a very loose interpretation, but I thought it was so interesting when I was rereading to try and like grab some parallels here. When Neville steps out to confront Voldemort when they believe Harry to have died, Voldemort puts the sorting hat on Neville's head and sets it on fire. <laughs> I completely forgot that that happened. Yeah. That's incredible. It's a bit extra. Because it wasn't in the movie. Because it wasn't in the movie, right. right. All I remember is the Draco hug. It would have been <laughs> too dark. Too dark. <laughs> too right. dark. This movie was already teenagers. very dark. <laughs> head on fire. Um, and of course, you have the ultimate, you have the climactic moment of the series in which Harry dies to extend his mother's protection to everyone during the final battle, which mm-hmm. is direct inspiration from the cultural narrative of Christ dying for our sins. Mm-hmm. And Harry even says, like, it's it's almost biblical when you read over that dialogue where Harry's being like, you can't touch them. I meant to die to protect them. So my protection covers all of them now. Mm. It's very, very interesting to read, um, you know, read sort of that point, like read about the resurrection of Christ and then the resurrection of Harry. There are some very striking resemblances. If we're making these comparisons and you just mentioned Harry being resurrected, King's Cross, do we then look to Dumbledore as being God or being God-like at least? Yeah. So it's actually super interesting you mentioned that. And it's not at all related to um, the Neville side of things. But there are absolutely things that Dumbledore does throughout the series that are very God-like. You're damn right. <laughs> I think, yes, we can, we can safely assume that Dumbledore is the God character of the Harry Potter books. Um, and what's so interesting about that is, remember Ron and how Dumbledore gave Ron the Deluminator? Mm-hmm. If you think about Jesus and his disciples, um, Jesus actually predicted that Peter was going to betray him. And if you were to draw you know, a comparison between Ron and Peter, you could argue that Dumbledore predicted that Ron was going to, quote, betray Harry and gave him the deluminator because he knew that Ron would always want to find his way back. So in that way, you could argue that Dumbledore has made this prediction, again, in a very godlike way. And then it kind of goes down the rabbit hole of like, Jesus is like himself, but he's also God. He's like God's (laughs) son, but he's also God. So like the idea of God and Jesus, like depending on who you talk to, they're very much like a two in one deal. Oh, yeah. Well, when Harry goes to King's Cross and says, is this happening in my head? So like Dumbledore is there, Mm -hmm. but it's also part of Harry. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And he also owns a bird that is all about rebirth and coming Mm -hmm. back from the ashes. And so and that's what we learn about in Fantastic Beasts, that his family actually has a strong tie to this particular legendary bird. Yeah. And it's Definitely interesting, too, because, of course, it would be a lie to say that all of the, you know, sort of cultural retellings that we see in Harry Potter are Christian or biblical because they're not. I mean, there's a ton of, um, you know, Celtic influence and, you know, Greek and Roman mythology wrapped up in there. And that could also be an entirely separate episode. But it's also interesting that we see this legacy of retold stories existing in inside of Potter with the tales of Beetle the Bard. These are, 
you know, ancient stories that have been passed down to explain things that are happening in the world that people didn't understand at the time. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just the power of oral storytelling. I love that the practice has survived. You know, now we have Kindle ebooks and all sorts of ways to not get a story via oral storytelling, but the practice still exists and podcasts are more popular mm-hmm. than ever. Even ASMR ones, <laughs> you can get whisper told a story um, if you want. And it's and it's incredibly soothing and it's incredibly powerful. The power of the spoken word. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just love that that is a tradition that has continued to this day and it existed before writing. Yeah. It's also interesting to think about the reasons why the oral tradition has persisted. I mean, originally you had the fact that most people couldn't read or write. Right. So the oral tradition was the only way to share these things. Um, You know, but now we find ourselves in a time where life sort of necessitates things like podcasts and the oral tradition because we're all so busy. We spend so much time commuting and, you know, working these standard nine to five shifts um, that, you know, life maybe doesn't leave as much time for reading as we might like. Oral is passive. It's easier to consume. Mm-hmm. You don't have to stay perfectly focused. Also, I think it's should. because people can do the voices. <laughs> yeah, you know, there is something really special about hearing a story. Well, thank you all so much for your contributions to this side of the discussion. Um, we do have some notes about just how linked Harry and Neville's journeys are within the Potter books. It's not just this, you know, Christ and John the Baptist, um, you know, retold influence, um, but these two are intrinsically linked. And our hope is that these carry even deeper significance, knowing just how ancient the stories that influenced their journeys are. Yeah. So let's start with uh, everybody's favorite Neville moments. We wanted to kick it off here because Neville, I think it's really easy sometimes for Neville to get overlooked. He's sort of like Shadow Harry in a yeah, way. Yeah, he's the <laughs> ugly duckling. He's he's not the chosen one. He's the second one. He's the other one. But nobody even knows it. Right. He's a mess. And <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know about that. No, I'm no, just thinking is. about Wait, the early years. Yeah, the early years yeah. are real rough. They're really rough. He gets now. better. Mm-hmm. Of course. But gets better. all that taken into consideration, and, and maybe we'll get into this, if he was raised by his parents versus being raised by his grandmother, would we have gotten a different Neville? And I think mm-hmm. the answer to that is definitely. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his, his grandmother, I think, tended to focus on what he wasn't. And when we were doing research for this uh, episode, I was reminded of the moment where McGonagall gets on Augusta's case about being proud of the grandson she has versus the one she mm. wants. Uh, it's it's when they're talking about owls and newts. And yeah, it's it kind of just low-key blew my mind again thinking about it. But I mean, Neville was raised by a family that wanted him to be his parents, and he's just like not gonna be that, but like he's special in his own right and the way he can take that sorting hat that's literally on fire, pull a sword out and behead a snake right after that is pretty damn cool. And speaking of cool, Eric, I think you had your favorite Neville moment yeah. here. 
not many people would say he peaked early, but uh, <laughs> an early indicator would uh, would seem to be. I always forget about this moment too, but the whole "I'll fight you" at the end of year one. You're going out of the dormitory. He says to the trio, "You're going to lose our house points, and I can't can't let you do that again." Neville has just been through hell. He's been through detention with the rest of them. Uh, they're kind of stringing him along, and he stands up to them i know dumbledore famously like gives him points or whatever afterwards but like it it, it a great that's deal not more to stand up to your oh, friends. Uh, <laughs> like i liked that i i, I like it, it but gets it's 10 points right well he gets the winning 10 points that's yeah that's what but it's that's the... so cheap this we've had this discussion before dumbledore could have went big yeah and and made a point about what neville did to. he gave him he gave him 10 measly points yeah. but because Dumbledore of those points they won neville, the house like he cup. doesn't care about anybody i know he gives neville the least anyway, amount of go points ahead. Everybody sorry has. yeah so so the whole dumbledore thing great but but the moment is like dumbledore's words are not wrong standing up to your friends is hard if you have to like imagine telling a friend that they have to wear a mask if they want to come see you like yeah. and they're resistant to that how much of a pain is that you know like andrew you're conflict averse you know won't that be a difficult thing <laughs> right I have to tell Laura every week to put on a mask, and it's hard to tell her to do that. Oh my god, that is such BS, and she just refuses. (laughs) But so, but so, it's it's really like that. Like Neville is fighting the good fight. He and like the trio at eleven don't really respect or understand the magnitude of what Neville's doing, and they think that they're right because they're the ones who have to stop Snape from getting the stone. Yeah. you know, so they brush him off and Hermione totally ruins him. Um, but, you know, I it's a big deal what Neville does. And, and that's an early indicator. That's an early indicator that he draws the line somewhere different. He's not going to, you know, just because they're his friend, he's still he's still got a strong moral center, I think. I'm yeah. wondering now, um, pre Order of the Phoenix, had any of us guessed that Neville had a larger role to play in, you know, the background and, you know, (laughs) the beginning of what made the Harry Potter series Harry Potter. No. No. I mean, I think Eric's argument, you know, reading this area in hindsight, you can definitely see what J.K. Rowling may have been leading towards. But no, I don't think I don't think so. Right. My favorite Neville moment, and this is, we just talked about it because we just did Order of the Phoenix. I love Department of Mysteries Neville. It's really when he comes out of his shell, we we see him have that glow up, you know. But I particularly love the moment where he inadvertently destroys the prophecy that marked he and Harry. <laughs> yeah. I love well, that he's the one who kicks it. And smashes a thing that he has no idea is what defined his life. I mean, it's criminal that Dumbledore didn't also then take him aside and show him the prophecy that was lost. I know. I was thinking that, too. I was like, man, that's basically why his parents are in St. Mungo's. What the hell, Dumbledore? Yeah, he has a right to know. Like, he has the same right to know. And, like, Harry, there's a line in the book where, like, Harry's, like, not going to tell him. But... Yeah. It's Are a- you surprised after Dumbledore only gave him ten points in Philosopher's Stone <laughs> that he wouldn't that, even that was a clear sit indicator down? that Dumbledore is all speak and no act. He's Team Harry. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that was definitely some Old Testament God right there. It's like, <laughs> your bravery is worth nothing. My mm-hmm. favorite moment, I thought somebody else would put this in before me, was him killing Nagini. Yeah. And then it teed up Harry for the final duel. And it just put a bow on Neville's growth over the years. And then in a way, it made him a part of the prophecy after all. He helped vanquish the Dark Lord. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I like that a lot. And considering, you know... I joke about how big the circle is of people that all can like partake and kill Horcruxes, even Goyle <laughs> or whoever yeah. is, is responsible for killing a Horcrux. It doesn't just need to be Harry. But I like that it, it ultimately is still a relatively small few people that are responsible for destroying Voldemort. And Neville is one of them. Well, not only that, it is literally the last line of defense mm-hmm. to Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Once Nagini is dead, Voldemort That's can it. be destroyed. And it's important that it's Neville who does that. And my moment is similar to yours, Andrew, but it precedes the killing of Nagini, which is him just standing up to Voldemort. And we talked about the movie a little bit earlier, but just that moment when he stands up for Harry and what Harry believed in, what Harry was fighting for, and the sorting hat comes out, Voldemort puts it on his head, sets it on fire he still is able to defy Voldemort in that just the fact that he would stand up to him. Like, let's remember, let's go back, connect the threads to Philosopher's Stone when he stands up to Harry, right? And he gets hit with Petrificus Totalis. Now he's standing up to Voldemort, the the darkest wizard of all time with no regrets whatsoever. Mm -hmm. He's probably (laughs) got a few butterflies flying around in his stomach, but (laughs) this is the kid that we called a mess just a couple minutes earlier. He's, so he's really, yeah, young Neville's very much. He's staring down the Dark Lord. Well, yeah, and you have to think standing up to your friends is way harder than standing up to an enemy, uh, right? Like I, I would enemy, feel though. <laughs> this is like the enemy. Yeah, but this is also after his two years in Dumbledore's army and he's been mobilizing True. the forces and getting everyone ready for this moment. So he probably thought about this moment several times before mm-hmm. he stepped forward to face him. And he does it knowing full well that in that moment, Voldemort could have killed him. Oh, yeah. He didn't absolutely. have to pull the sorting hat out of the school and do that little trick and and set his head on fire basically which i'm assuming he thought was going to end up killing him anyway but he could have just taken a curse right to the chest right then and there mm-hmm. and that would have been it i was I really worried that, that says a lot i was worried that that was going to happen when i was first reading i was like neville no shh, shh stay there don't say anything <laughs> you know right it's like man And it's fascinating because here you have Neville willing to die to save his peers from Voldemort. He's willing to stand up for what's right and die for it just in the same way that Harry is. Neville doesn't get enough credit. (laughs) (laughs) He deserves more than 10 points for this. That's for sure. Well, we're going to continue our discussion about Neville in a moment. It's time now for another word from one of this week's sponsors. We've been speaking a lot about Neville today, and I'm wondering, could a klutz like him possibly cook well? <laughs> well, listen up, Neville's of the world, because this week's episode of MuggleCast is sponsored by HelloFresh, who will deliver you fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes right to your door. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun, affordable, and easy. 
HelloFresh offers so many recipes to choose from each week to help you break out of your recipe rut. With everyone spending more time at home than usual, I'm sure you're feeling like now's the time to come up with some new recipes, and these are for you. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every week. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes or even 20 minutes with their quick recipe options. Plus, HelloFresh can help you live sustainably. HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients means there's less prep for you, less wasted money, and less food waste. In fact, since they offset their operations, travel, and shipping emissions, HelloFresh's carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals, according to a study by the University of Michigan. That is awesome. I am such a big fan of HelloFresh because it gives me an opportunity to shake up my dinners. It's fun and exciting to make something new that you know is going to be good. I am in no way a good chef, so having someone plan out my meals is perfect. See, it's not just Neville I'm insulting during this ad. It's a great way to shake up your routine, and the food is coming from great places. In fact, over 90% of ingredients are sourced directly from growers to ensure the freshest recipes are delivered to your door. If you want fresh, truly fresh, great tasting and easy to make food sent right to your door, go to hellofresh.com slash muggle80 and use code muggle80 to get a total of $80 off your first month, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit hellofresh.com for more details. hellofresh.com slash muggle80 and use code muggle80 to get a total of $80 off your first month. I can see Neville having like a robust garden, like a vegetable garden that he cooks from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe he's one of the uh, growers that HelloFresh sources <laughs> he from. He cooks for Hannah. Hopefully we don't get any mandrakes included in those boxes. <laughs> well, oh, you, would, you, would, you would know. <laughs> they wouldn't have to ring the doorbell. You would Maybe. just, oh, oh my, my HelloFresh is here. That's so, it's such a macabre visual to like open your, bo- your door and see a box and just hear screaming. <laughs> Coming out of it. Your neighbor's like, did they just get delivered a baby? (laughs) Yes, you can have it. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. So we wanted to take some time to go through each of the seven books and pick out some key moments where Harry and Neville are actually very connected in ways that we might not have realized when we were reading for the first time. Um, So to kick us off in Philosopher's or Sorcerer's Stone, depending on your edition, um, we can talk about Harry and Neville's backgrounds. So they both kind of come to Hogwarts at a disadvantage. Harry, not knowing of his background or the history of the world that he's from. And later we learn Neville's use of his father's wand, which didn't choose him kind of put him at a disadvantage. We all we were always led to believe that he just wasn't good at magic. And, you know, his gran had told him they thought he might be a squib. Um, but really, it's very likely that Neville was just put at this great disadvantage because his gran was trying to shove him into this box of being just like his father. So that really hurts both of them. And they're they're both kind of in the same boat at Hogwarts, even though Neville obviously has an existing background knowledge of the wizarding world. Yeah. No, I I like that, that both Harry and Neville were told by their family that they weren't magical. 
um mm-hmm. you know neville and and then of course harry through omission because the dursleys swore they'd stomp it out and this is probably one of the areas where neville grew insecure because if he's thinking he might be a squib he won't be as talented as his parents and oh, yeah. maybe in his early hogwarts years he's thinking well maybe i still am a squib oh and he, he you know it's a huge shadow his parents were frank and alice longbottom the noted people who survived you know voldemort all those times um i also think this happens in real life all the time if you have an overprotective parent um the children can end up being very anxious and very afraid mm-hmm. to go out and do things because the parent has rightly at times pointed out the dangers that exist in the world around us and and sometimes if kids are not given sort of the the freedom to go and find and do and explore um because they're in you know being kept and coddled in in a position of safety those children aren't ready to fight and face the the open world when the time comes and i think neville might might have had just a little bit of that as well definitely and this kind of ties into the upbringing, but just the fact that Harry and Neville are both raised by family that aren't their parents, right? And I think that in Petunia in particular, and in Augusta, you have two people who are really just hard asses, and that has an effect on their upbringing. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. I like that comparison. Um Biggest thing for me when going through book one, looking for what Harry and Neville have in common, I didn't remember this, but they take the same boat to Hogwarts. Oh my god! Yeah, there's literally I... it, it's it's Harry hops in, he's like, "Oh, these boats are cool," and then behind him, Neville and Hermione pile in, and I was like, "Oh my god, Neville's in the same boat as Harry." Hey, fellow chosen one, yes, these boats are cool. Hey, hey they're in the same boat. Get it? i completely forgot about this and another factoid from the book the very next chapter uh is that the sorting hat takes a long time to decide with neville not quite sure what jk rowling's pointing at here maybe maybe it decided that he might also do well in hufflepuff just throwing a guess out there um but ends up deciding on gryffindor we know the same thing with the sorting hat for harry uh, right. The Sorting Hat heavily considers Slytherin. Yeah, that's an important one because it shows their intricacies. Even the yeah. Sorting Hat can't make up their mind. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I like that. It's like not just so simple as like Malfoy, who barely touches his head. Yeah, evil Slytherin. <laughs> <laughs> Do you all think that um, Neville had a similar dialogue with the Sorting Hat as Harry did? Where Harry was not like, not Hufflepuff, not Hufflepuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not Hufflepuff, eh? Are you sure? Maybe. I mean, it's if I was a to kid, the I bet a lot of kids did that. I, I, If I was going through that experience, I would be hoping for one house over the other or not a specific house. But like, based on the way that we see the public students talking about Hufflepuff, nobody's going to want to be in there. Right. Well, and do we know, were Frank and Alice also Gryffindors? Hmm. Eh, you assume so, but its I don't think it's stated. I can definitely see this being a, a big moment of pressure for Neville, again, to try and, you know, fill some some large shoes if his family has a legacy of being Gryffindors and he's been told his entire young life that he might be a squib, he's hoping he doesn't fail this test, right? It's just so 
It's so interesting because we know that the real thing that Neville's got going for him, probably as early as book two or three, it's noted that he does like real well on his test for herbology. And like Neville's really into herbology. He understands plants. He has like the patience for them. Plants are also like a big Hufflepuff thing. As I mean, the head of Hufflepuff house, Pomona Sprout, um, can be found in the greenhouses. Yep. And it's it's a very kind of Hufflepuff sort of thing. Well, to be and able Neville to do, takes guess. her spot after she mm-hmm. retires, right? There you so, go. yeah, there's definitely a connection. And I think that just goes to the fact that there are qualities that can evolve in a person, characteristics, things that can come about later on in life. Then maybe we sort too early, right? Isn't uh, <laughs> whose line is that? Dumbledore's. Dumbledore's. Yeah, sometimes AKA I think God. God. <laughs> Actually, Aslan said that in uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. <laughs> um, and something that I thought was really interesting, I love how you all touched on, you know, earlier that Harry you know, really tease or Neville really tease Harry off to be able to take Voldemort down in book one Harry or Neville also kind of tease Harry off inadvertently to become the Gryffindor seeker when Harry rescues Neville's remember all during their broom lesson. Oh yeah. That's great. Thanks Neville. I know this is huge though. This is not a small item, Laura. This Mm -mm. shows that he is, a really good Quidditch player. And I don't know how Harry would have otherwise found out. He wouldn't mm. have. He's not trying oh. out, not as a first year. Maybe McGonagall would have pushed him along anyway, knowing what she knew about James. Oh, yeah, maybe eventually, because we are meant to believe it's like the ability to ride a broom is genetic somehow. Yeah, but would Harry would Harry have found out that he was particularly suited to be a seeker? I don't know. So moving on to Chamber of Secrets, I have a movie comparison. This is a line from the movie. Neville Longbottom says when he's uh, in the, uh, what are those? Pixies. The the Cornish Pixies. Yeah. When when he gets hung up on the chandelier, Neville says, why is it always me? And I was just thinking about how Harry always thinks that internally. It's similar to him being the chosen one. Like, (laughs) why is it always me? Mm -hmm. Why is it always me, the chosen one? Andrew, I I thought you were going to say me and your Gilderoy voice. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it always me? (laughs) So then, of course, at the end of Chamber of Secrets, Harry kills uh, the giant basilisk, just like uh, Neville does at the end of book seven, as we brought up earlier. And Laura, you added with the sword of Gryffindor. Both of them use the sword of Gryffindor. Yep. Yeah, well, how about I'll add another layer because it's down in Deathly Hallows too. It's pulled from the sorting hat and it destroys a Horcrux. Bingo! (laughs) Technically, the Basilisk Fang kills the Horcrux, but Harry kills the Basilisk with the Fang. But yeah, yeah, the giant snakes sort of are same-ish. An assist. It's an assist. Definitely definitely an assist. Um, Ready for my favorite one of all time. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm so yes. excited is, to hear about this. You have so many great points here. Yeah, this is in Prisoner of Azkaban. When asked, well, when when in disguise, going undercover, Harry is asked his name on the night bus. And what should he just come up with the first, what should he say? But the first name that comes to mind, I'm Neville Longbottom. <laughs> so, we, you know, we could sit here all day, and I know we will for the rest of the episode, making comparisons between Harry and Neville, how they're similar, but Harry legit introduces himself as Neville Longbottom. That uh, says it all right there. Oh, I am Neville. Yeah, I am Neville. <laughs> They're the same person. Case closed. Goodbye. Good night. Also, there might be something going on with Neville and the Dementor. 
because it's not a, a point of view sort of Neville thing, it may be hard to tell, but basically uh, when the Dementors board the train um, and Harry sort of comes to after passing out, he looks around the, the cabin. We know it's full, but Hermione and Ron are not seem to be as affected as Ginny and Neville. And we know what's going on with Ginny, but Neville, too, is just described as looking very pale. And I'm thinking, huh, I wonder if the Dementors affect Neville the same way they affect Harry in terms of like reliving a childhood trauma. Yeah, I think that that's a safe assumption to make, especially when you consider the connection to death and also the fact that Harry, Neville and Ginny were all Im- impacted by the veil in book five. Speaking of connecting the threads, of course, we don't know Luna at this point in Prisoner of Azkaban, but we know that she was affected, too, by the veil. So, yeah, I think that we can definitely draw a comparison between the impacts of the veil and the Dementor on Neville. Yeah, and it's so subtle that you'd like miss it, but I was reading that chapter and I was like, oh yeah, he's described as looking especially pale. I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Here's something else funny that I discovered while I was reading. Um, the chapter where Harry, there's like the first Hogsmeade weekend. Um, Harry's kind of internally struggling with the fact that he doesn't have a permission slip. And who should come out and say, um, I must have lost my permission slip? Then Neville. Neville also doesn't have a permission <laughs> slip to Hogsmeade. I'm like... So the first Hogsmeade weekend, Harry's panicking about not being able to go. And you know who else is panicking? Neville. I loved that. But it turns out that Augusta just sent the permission form to McGonagall directly. It really makes you trust Neville. (laughs) But it makes you wonder how much of that's really Neville's fault. Like if Augusta is sort of keeping him in like. (laughs) She's not helping him. Yeah, exactly. She's Eh. she's like coddling him too much. Like to the point where he can't be self-sufficient. She knows he'll lose it. We see this in the real world all the time. Parents just directly send stuff to the teacher maybe because Mm. they can't trust their kid to deliver it. Yeah. (laughs) Make sure you give this note to your teacher. Yes, mom. Did you give the note (laughs) to your teacher? No, I forgot, mom. Damn it, Charlie. Just uh, going back to the why is it always me line. Isn't it Neville who loses the password to Gryffindor Tower that enables Sirius Black to get in with an assist from Crookshanks. But I was going to say Crookshanks legit steals that shit like off his bedside table or something. So it's totally (laughs) not Neville's. So careless. Don't be so forgetful that you have to write the password down. Yeah. 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 Good point. You know what, though? Neville never gets justice for this. Like he takes so much crap during the book from Professor McGonagall for thinking that he just like lost the list somewhere. There's never any recognition for poor Neville that while writing your passwords down on a piece of paper is definitely a horrible idea. It wasn't entirely his fault. Yeah. Well, who's going to tell him Hermione? <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, I, hey, actually, it was my cat. Last past isn't around anymore. At, my, at this yeah, point. my it's cat's too early. Jerk. And and here's something that really tickled my brain. Um, going through some of the old potions classes, and the only person that Snape enjoys picking on more than Harry might, in fact, be Neville. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the 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 shrinking solution that he threatens Neville's toad with, and just Snape and Neville are so at odds that Snape is legit Neville's bogger. So there's definitely a huge thing between Snape 
and the students he tortures, the Gryffindors that he tortures. And this made me wonder. We know it was Snape that delivered the prophecy to uh, Voldemort about these two boys. Does he know that Neville could have also been like Harry and Harry could have been like, is he angry at Neville because he's not the chosen one and Harry is? I know. So Snape really shows that he's, you know, he's a bully and he's also selfish when it comes to Lily. And it does make you wonder, like, does he harbor some resentment towards Neville for not being the one Voldemort chose? Right. Ooh. Yeah, I was going to say, like does his... he blame Neville in some weird Snape kind of way for <laughs> what happened to Lily? In some weird Snape kind of way? Yes, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, I agree, Laura. He's just a bully and he he looks for that weakness and he can definitely see it, at least at this point, in somebody like Neville. And he uses it to his advantage to make him feel good because that's just the kind of person he is. You know, and I he clearly think he doesn't think very much of Harry and he thinks even less of Neville in terms of their abilities and intelligence. So I wonder too, just taking this to an even darker place, if Snape is sitting here being like, these two idiots are the ones that the prophecy was made about. These two are the reason why the love of my life is dead. What the hell? These two dunderheads. Let's look forward to Goblet of Fire. Yes. So um, in this book, Harry learns from Dumbledore that Neville's parents are in the hospice and do not recognize him. So obviously, this comes up again in the next book. Um, But this is the first time we hear about it. And both sets of parents have suffered tragic fates. Yeah. So that was really... Does Dumbledore tell Harry at this point that it was Bellatrix who drove them to St. Mungo's or do we not learn that till Order of the Phoenix? I don't think it was specifically Bellatrix because she only really comes in in Order of the Phoenix. Right. Yeah. In terms of a specific name being mentioned. And okay. of course, you recognize her. her though when he sees her on the cover or is it Neville there? I'm trying to remember because mm. I'm trying to think back to the trials and if Harry would have seen Bellatrix at all in those uh, memories of Dumbledore's. Uh, in Goblet of Fire, Harry witnesses her trial for the torture of Neville's parents. Okay. Yes. Um, and then the other thing I noticed, which was kind of funny, they both had a feeling or two for Hermione and Ginny. Neville asks both of them to the ball. Oh, yeah. And obviously, he marries Ginny. Yeah. Just one other thing that came to mind, too, about Harry and Neville in Goblet of Fire is, is they're both kind of coached along at times by Imposter Moody. Mm-hmm. We talked, I think it was in the last episode, about uh, Barty Crouch Jr. And, and how despite teaching the unforgivable curses, he's still willing to take time with Neville after performing the Cruciatus curse to really just sit him down and, and you know, he gives him this herbology book and, and treats him well. And we know it's all under false pretenses, but he does the same with Harry throughout to try and get him to a point, obviously, where he'll ultimately win the Triwizard Tournament. But I just found that to be interesting too. Yeah. Barty Crouch Jr. is such an interesting character because he leads with, I don't know, kindless kindness, weirdly. Like he understands that sometimes to get something done or to get somebody to buy in, you need to meet them and like be a little compassionate. Like I think he maybe he's working off some guilt uh for what he did to Neville's parents. Um in the case of Neville. And with Harry, maybe he's like conflicted or not conflicted because he knows he wants to do it but maybe he feels a little bit bad about leading harry to his what is sure to be his death 
You just yeah. never know. I wonder if he sees some of himself in Harry and or Neville. I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why not? Voldemort chose Harry because he saw some of himself in Harry and Harry being a half-blood. So why not? Something that I wonder, a question for the panel. We know that, you know, Imposter Moody gave Neville the Herbology book in the hope that Neville would be able to lead Harry to a solution for, I think, the second task. Yeah. Is it, that it right? It comes yes. through more yeah. in the movie. Um, it, it's Dobby that ultimately gets Harry the Gillyweed in in the book, but it's it's Neville that directly makes reference to it in the movie. Mm-hmm. If I'm I just remembering find correctly. It really interesting that Neville was chosen to be like the conduit for this knowledge to Harry, because you know, surely somebody like Hermione might have been a more direct path, but he specifically chose Neville. He chose John. Yeah. He chose <laughs> he chose the second place chosen one. Time for a word from our final sponsor of this week. Good for anyone who's dealt with horrible life events like Neville or Harry. Better help. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Get ahead of your issues now by working with a therapist at BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs in a variety of categories and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's super easy to get started. I'm going to give you a link in a minute, and you can fill out a simple survey right there so that you can be connected with the right therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's no going to an office every week. You'll simply do it from the comfort of your own home, which is so important right now. Being able to access resources at home means it won't take much time out of your schedule. Plus, the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. Then you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you have to do with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today, and we have a special offer for MuggleCast listeners. Get 10% off your first month of therapy at BetterHelp.com slash MuggleCast. Again, visit BetterHelp.com slash MuggleCast. That's BetterHelp.com slash MuggleCast and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Okay, so let's look at the similarities in book five. Yeah, I'll try and move through these relatively quickly, just given the fact that we wrapped up the Order of the Phoenix chapter by chapter not that long ago. But uh, a couple of things that came to mind, the first being Dumbledore's army. Harry trains Neville. He builds his confidence. He empowers him to become the Neville that we see later on in the fifth book. And uh, funnily enough, the first spell that he really masters during Dumbledore's army is Harry's signature spell, which is hey. Spelliarmus. Mm-hmm. He had never done it before. Uh-huh. And who did they both learn it from? Me. Snake. <laughs> <laughs> this next one was was talked about a little bit um, in Goblet of Fire, but Harry and Neville have both had their parents taken from them by Voldemort and the Death Eaters. Uh, we know Harry's are murdered and Neville's have been stripped of their agency, a fate many would argue is worse than death. Now, while Harry is aware from fourth year that Neville's parents were tortured, the full impact of this is not felt until they go to St. Mungo's, where the trio run into Neville 
and his grandmother. Yeah, that's, mm. that's, that's a big one. Now, Neville insists a little bit later on in the book that he, Luna, and Ginny accompany Harry, Ron, and Hermione to the ministry. In this moment, Neville really shows much of the same stubbornness we would expect of Harry in a similar situation. I remember it really clearly from the movie where he says, basically, we're all in Dumbledore's army, right? Or was this just a game? <laughs> yeah. And it's the opposite of the stubbornness that Harry is feeling, right? Because Harry doesn't want them to come and Neville really does want them all to go. Yeah. I just I love how annoyed Harry is in that scene. He's like, oh, but there's so many of us who are like, we don't even know how we're going to get there. And like, oh, <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 we're coming with we're coming with. And he's like, yeah. oh, fine. I really love how we see reflections of the trio in this moment, because obviously, you know, you have two Weasleys who are, you know, reflections of one another, Harry and Neville, um, who are very much on the same journey. And then you have Hermione and Luna, who, you know, I don't think Hermione would very much like this comparison, but um, <laughs> Luna has a similar tendency towards being very informed on the things that she's interested in. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, Hermione doesn't view it as being academic enough, so she doesn't respect it. But there are some similarities between those characters. I love that. Let's do a whole episode on Hermione and Luna comparisons. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Next week. This point was also referenced. Laura called it the glow up for Neville. But once we get inside the Department of Mysteries, Neville is definitely the most Gryffindor of the bunch. He confronts Bellatrix uh, with much of the same bravery that Harry confronts Voldemort. And he is put under the Cruciatus curse by Bellatrix, a curse that Harry endures from Voldemort at the end of Goblet of Fire. So probably not the best connection to make, but both of them have now suffered the effects of a unforgivable curse. And Neville also has the determination and attitude we often see in Harry towards the end of prior books. You know, despite how badly he's been beaten, how many curses has been have been flung his way, he's just unrelenting in his desire to fight and defend his friends in the in the um the death chamber. Agreed. Yeah, that's great. All right, let's look at Half-Blood Prince. These ones might be a little bit of a stretch, but I swear I did the digging. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not a stretch. They, these are these are absolutely verifiable uh, comparisons between the two of them. Uh, starting with the very important uh, opening uh, article of the Daily Prophet, in which it is revealed that Scrimgeour succeeds Fudge, Harry and Neville both get mentioned in the same Daily Prophet article, and in fact, the reason is they're both uh, referenced by name by Augusta Longbottom, who the story is interviewing. So uh, Augusta's like, yeah, my grandson Neville, and oh, he's friends with Harry Potter. It's just like, oh, Harry and Neville are mentioned in the same newspaper clipping. That's cool. Like if you okay. did a Google search. Small, the, but you tried. Yeah, Google search result. <laughs> I tried. Give me a sticker. Yeah. Um <laughs> Good job, both good Harry job. and Neville are invited to the Slug Club at the same time. They both get a summons that's specifically for them. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Okay. Do we think and Scrimgeour knows? Or not Scrimgeour, um, Slughorn. Uh, about I the prophecy? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Why, Why invite Neville otherwise? I mean, apart, well, I guess the legacy no, for the Order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, 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 can, you can be inviting Neville and Harry because both, are, both of them have badass parents that 
thrice to fight Voldemort without knowing that there was a prophecy that specifically said that each of these kids would have parents that thrice right. to fight Voldemort. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Slughorn pays, I think, attention to that kind of stuff, especially while he was in hiding during the last war. I think he would have admired the people who were sticking it to Voldemort. Um a little bit anyway um very final at the end of the book thing that i've got here is just that snape uh successfully gets past both harry and neville um you know he outdoes them because snape is snape and they're just pissant 16 year olds Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and at this point they have no idea that they have snape to blame for what happened yeah damn it snape damn it snape and let's bring it home with Deathly Hallows. Yeah. So, and again, a lot of these we've already touched on, but Neville is is truly the leader of the resistance within Hogwarts. He's the one who shows up at the Hog's Head to get Harry, Ron, and Hermione when when they find their way to Hogsmeade. And uh, he's been the champion of their cause within Hogwarts, really, for the entire year. We don't see it, obviously, because we're you know out camping in tents, but um, yeah, he's the man. And uh, he confronts Voldemort. You know, and I thought one of the more important things is that he's given the choice to become a Death Eater by Voldemort. And much like Harry had the choice to be in Slytherin. Now, I'm not saying that Harry would have become a Death Eater, but Harry is also offered by Quirrellmort in Sorcerer's Stone to join forces, however mm-hmm. disingenuous that offer may have been. So both of them are given options at very different points of the series, but they are given the option to join the dark side. Yeah. And they could have, I mean, they both would have been quote unquote qualified to do so really goes back to what Dumbledore says about, you know, it's our choices that make us who we are. I don't know, Andrew, if you want to do your Dumbledore voice. It is our choices who make us who we truly are. I give that about a six out of a 10. (laughs) Caught me (laughs) off guard. Sorry. (laughs) Micah, I love how you circled back to, you know, Neville being the leader of the resistance, because this is very much in line with, you know, the John the Baptist narrative we talked about earlier. You know, he was the one spreading the good word to prepare everyone for the arrival of Christ, who, like, when you read the Bible, there's not like a whole lot in there about like his middle adolescent years, he's like a kid and then he comes back and he's like 30. Um, And, you know, much like this, Harry disappears for an entire school year and nobody really knows where he's going or what he's up to. But nevertheless, Neville is steadily preparing his peers for the moment when Harry returns. Mm, I love that so much. (laughs) It's a real abundance of faith because like Harry could have died at any time out on his camping adventure and they might have never known and Neville would have been like, all right, guys, today's the day. I feel it. They're like, Neville, we we should have graduated five years ago. And Why are we still you here? You see just how quickly things escalate too once Harry does in fact return. And the fact that Neville has kind of kept all of these people together throughout the course of the year, mm-hmm. it's important for the fight that they're about to encounter. Um, One other thing, though, that Voldemort mentions to Neville that I thought was worth talking about, it can probably even fill an entire episode, but he mentions Neville is of noble stock. So I wondered, if is this why Voldemort ultimately chose Harry instead? Not necessarily because, as Dumbledore says, because 
they're alike in so many ways. But because he didn't want to potentially take out a future member of a pure blood family. Oh, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. That noble stock is pure blood, baby. Yeah. I think that's some good meat. I think it's really possible that there were multiple motivations there. I think it's possible that going for Harry served the dual purpose of allowing Voldemort to mark Harry because he saw himself in Harry, but also leave the door open for someone of noble stock to rise to the occasion of joining the Death Eaters should he have decided to do so. But I would really encourage, just as a parting thought, we're kind of running long on time here, but I would really recommend if you're interested in this um, type of master narrative reading of the Potter books, really take a moment to compare um, the final battle of Hogwarts with the resurrection of Christ. There are There's so much overlap that happens and just a ton of really fun literary analysis that you can do with that. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's something we can do on a future episode. Yeah. Yeah. The the one final point I'll add, because I know we've talked about how Neville kills Nagini, but I just think that it is so important because it is the last layer of protection to Voldemort. Neville essentially clears the way for Harry to finish him off. And so if we're talking about how these two are essentially joined directly or indirectly throughout the course of this entire series. The fact that Neville's the one who basically throws up the alley-oop for, for Harry to throw down a slam dunk, uh, it, it says something. All right. So that's Harry and Neville. I learned a lot today. That was a great discussion. Yeah, thanks, well, guys. Lot. We didn't say Jesus once. i'd be really interested to hear listener feedback on this um i think especially you know if you grew up with these narratives being a big part of your life you might have more to add to this conversation so let us know yeah email mugglecast at gmail.com or use the contact form on mugglecast.com or you could call us 19203muggle that's 19203684453 or Record yourself with the voice memo app on your phone and send that to MuggleCast at gmail.com. We are going to record a bonus MuggleCast this week as well. We will be discussing Fantastic Beasts 3. We learned when they are going to start filming and why we learned this bit of info. It's it's a bit sad. So we'll talk about that. And we're also going to talk about um, filming during COVID-19 because Robert Pattinson came down with covid He caught it presumably on the set of the Batman. That is also where they're going to be filming Fantastic Beasts 3. So we're going to talk about how this film could be even further delayed uh, in the event that one of their lead stars gets COVID-19. So that'll be available on our Patreon today. It's time now for Quizage. Last week's question was a show factoid trivia question. How many podcast awards does MuggleCast have? The correct answer, straight from the podcast and New Media Expo uh, archives, is three. Wow, they have an archive. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I that. I had to go to Wayback, but yeah. yeah oh, it's, okay. It's there. Also, one of our former banners used to have the the years. I think it's 2008, 2006, That's right. and 2009. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, correct answers were submitted to us over on Twitter by just four people. Lance Dance, Lazuli Christiatis. Count Ravioli, who said it's totally a guess, and Bort Voldemort, also Jason King. Congratulations to everyone who submitted. And uh, Neville-themed one. 
Next week's question, when exactly does Neville say he will join Voldemort? Okay, good question. Submit your answer to us over on Twitter. Hashtag Quizich. The day I die. Yeah. On next week's episode, we are going to discuss the scenes in the Harry Potter book series that happened in the background that we would love to see adapted in what I believe is the inevitable Harry Potter TV series. Think about Dumbledore researching the Horcruxes or what enemies like Imposter Moody and Quirrell and others were up to over the course of each book. I'm so looking forward to discussing this because there's so many things that happened in the Harry Potter series that we didn't really see happening because it's mostly from Harry's perspective. So we'll talk about that next week and stay tuned to our Patreon and social media channels because we may ask you all for uh, some ideas of your own. We'd also appreciate if you took a minute to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, if they have a rating system. Also, follow us on social media. On our Instagram story this weekend, we posted excellent fan art made by a couple of our listeners. Shout out to Zach and Jen for creating artwork depicting Dumbledore flying on the back of a Thestral and Professor Binns watching Judge Judy, just as I envisioned it. (laughs) If you ever feel inspired, by the way, to create some art based on our ridiculous discussions, please send it in. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, we would love if you joined our community of listeners today at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Like I said, we're going to have a new bonus MuggleCast installment available for everybody this week. And you can tune in as we record each new episode, typically on Saturday mornings. You will also receive some other magical benefits, including a personalized video thank you message, access to our planning docs, and a whole lot more, including a new physical gift every year. So thank you, everybody. Patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Goodbye. Bye.